Hey, Roamers, welcome back to the book club. It's Kyle and Christine here, and on this episode of the podcast, we're going to be covering Running the Amazon by Joe Kane. Christine. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. <laughs> You're here. Say hi I'm to here. the people. Hi to the people. <laughs> it's good to be here. Wow, it sounds like <laughs> I have you at gunpoint. I'm sorry. I'm feeling a little nervous. Well, not to worry. Uh, this is just a book club with a pretty limited listenership. So let's, <laughs> should we dive into the book? Oh, but before we get started, I have a little housekeeping. Yeah, there's housekeeping. We received another review, another score of Blair Braverman's book. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the goddamn Ice Cube. What was the score? It was it was a sliding scale, but it was a two. Wow. And then uh, maybe two point five. Wow. That's pretty low. Pretty. Why such the why such a low score? It was felt that she was going through some things and wrote the book without processing those things very deeply. Interesting. And not that well written or not that exciting. Oh wow. Wow. So someone doesn't want to see the processing taking place. I mean, you're going to process stuff your entire life, but... And I imagine writing a book is helpful in processing and realizing what happened, but interesting. You know, they Interesting say low score. Some stand-up comedians at a very amateur level will bomb on stage and say, I just use this for therapy. Or they'll say, this is my therapy, and it's bad. So maybe the same thing could be applied to writing books. I think I think I hear what you're saying. Well, that's, that's interesting. Okay. Do we have any other housekeeping updates? I don't think so. Other, I mean, unless you want to give cabin updates. Spring is here. Spring is here. Uh, well, one listener recommendation we had previously was to announce the next book at the beginning of the episode. That's true. All right, go for it. So our next book is Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey. It is a classic in the nature and probably more nature canon than adventure canon. Oh, but no. We'll see. It might be a slower one. I think anything Oof. is going to be slower when it then, has solitaire in the title? Wait, did I say desert solitaire? I thought so. <laughs> Maybe. Someone rewind the tape. <laughs> I think it's desert solitude. Oh, solitude. He's, he's, he's not, playing solitaire. He's not out there with a pack of cards. <laughs> Just, you know, give me a king. Give me a king. Yeah, I want to see those cards bounce back. Okay, I uh I have to I have to check what the real wor- what the real title of this book is. Oh damn! It is Edward Solitaire. I mean- Edward Solitaire <laughs> in the desert. I mean, it is. I think you're reading about the sequel. It is Desert Solitaire. Desert Solitaire. So it is about a guy wandering through the desert, playing cards. A season in the wilderness. 
it's an autobiographical work by American writer Edward Abbey, originally pu- published in 1968. Well, let me say on behalf of maybe some of the listeners, so Christine mapped out the first six books of the year here, or the next mm-hmm. six books? Okay, so... Hang in there because I requested that she get some survival books where people were thrust into an adventure and forced to have an adventure rather than going on these uh, walkabouts and what uh, what do they call it? Um, A mission quest. Vision quest. Vision quest. Vision quest with Edward Solitaire. (laughs) Mission quest with Edward Solitaire. Whoa, there's a lot of words being jumbled around here. But yes, I did go on a bit of a, a spree of ordering survi- like wilderness survival books, and they do look very interesting and fun to read. Hopefully so, exciting. Yeah, I would imagine that they're pretty exciting. So that, that'll be coming up maybe. Maybe we'll have like a little uh, season of survival. Oh, the you summer. Know? Summer yeah. survival section. Yeah. After having survived, you know, a global pandemic. All right. Well, let's dive into running the Amazon, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So if the next book is a little slow, I think it'll be a nice, you know, chill, chill out book compared to what we just read, which was so exciting. It was the most exciting book we've read yet. I think. Mm, Yeah, I think so. Well, okay. So one of the reasons that I think it was so exciting is because it had a little bit of everything. It had risks of all types, natural and human. It had um, drama in the form of the the expedition, the characters kind Mm -hmm. of that were involved. And and just like so much danger at every turn. And as soon as you thought you were out of the woods, kind of something else was around the corner. And um, it was just it was just very exciting the whole way through. Should we talk about some of that danger? Sure. Well, there were boulders. Boulders. Falling from the sky. Yes. And then you could get trapped in boulders. Underwater, when they were describing like how you could get stuck under a boulder in your kayak, I believe, th- and and the water still goes through like the small cracks within the boulders. Yeah, and they call it a sieve, a sieve, and that sounds like just the most terrifying situation to get in. Because yeah, because you can't get out. Yeah, no, I imagine that that might have kept you up at night. Because I can't swim. Right, right. Well, it sounds like even if you can swim, you're done for. Right. Doesn't matter. Well, maybe we should back up and say a little bit about what this adventure was. Sure. So it was seven people, seven main people from all parts of the globe, really, who decided they were going to be the first to navigate from the source to the sea the Amazon, so 4,200 miles, and they were going to do this um, starting in Peru, high up in the mountains, all the way down uh, to the to the ocean, to the Atlantic Ocean in uh, Brazil. 
And this was done in 1985. This was one of the few remaining quote unquote firsts mm. of global explorations at that point, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. There's always like this, I don't know, cachet or allure of being the first person to do something. Mm-hmm. And I think people are constantly wanting to be the first. And even though we thought or they thought back then that that was one of the first, one of the few remaining firsts, we're still coming up with them. We're always going to come up with them. Yeah. A friend of mine got a Guinness book of world records because he did the most burpees <laughs> in stilettos in a minute. And you know, they, you just get a little more specific with things. Yeah, a little bit more specific, a little bit more, yeah. Do you think it's a big deal if you're the first person to do it? I do think it is. Oh, okay, because the way you were talking, you it kind of sounded like you were like, oh, there's this cachet around being the first, but you do think it's a big deal. I don't think of it as being a big deal in terms of like, oh, another feather to put in my cap or pin to put on my lapel. It's more of this is a big deal because we weren't sure if it could even be done, but we still tried to do it. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a big deal from the sense of it can be done. Right, and showing that it can be done. Yeah. Right, just proving that it can be done. I mean, no one needs to do this. No, it's no one needs to do this. <laughs> it's so stupid, but proving that it can be done. Right. Not to get too far off subject too quickly, but I feel that way as someone who ran track. When certain times drop, it's just like, oh my goodness, I didn't, I didn't think that was possible. And that's kind of what these firsts feel like. Yeah. And we don't have to move that fast. No one has to move that fast. <laughs> right? I, I guess no one has to. <laughs> At least with that, there's money involved. <laughs> and with this, there really was no money involved. They tried really hard to get it funded by for all sorts of reasons to be like, well, this will hap- this will help map out parts of the Amazon that people have never really seen before or or don't really know well and that didn't even really get much Mm -hmm. uh, attention and they tried to get funding from uh, filmmakers and there were people involved that were I think filming a lot of the or parts of the expedition but they kind of quickly fell away and I looked there's no movie yeah that was my backup plan (laughs) Watch there's the movie. There's no movie. There's no documentary. Right. Yeah. That's crazy because that seemed to be a pretty big part of the trip. Right. And it right. Just, just the footage just is gone, I guess. Well, the, the expedition itself kind of unraveled. And, right. and that was a really fascinating piece to this whole story because there was some um, some really interesting like power and tension dynamics within this group because they all came from different parts and different had different alliances and different goals even. Well, maybe we should just give a quick outline of who some of the characters are. But the trip was funded by a guy who made his money in highway paint. 
<laughs> really? Oh yeah. Yeah, he he got some huge Part of contract it was, to yeah. paint the lines on highways. From Wyoming or Colorado? From, yeah, I believe he was from Wyoming and he was longing for more in life than just mm-hmm. making his mark on every highway in the United States. But, you know, it's one of those things where a person is rich and they're like, yeah, the highway paint isn't doing it for me. (laughs) Look at what these guys want to do. Let me help them out. I think he was probably talked into it. And he joined them on the journey. For for part of it, right. For part of it. And a a kind of a dangerous part of it. Oh, yeah, definitely. And some of these people on this trip did not really have the skills. The author. The author, Right. He had never really kayaked before. Isn't that right? I believe so. Yeah. He learned to kayak while doing this trip. First, he learned to raft while doing this trip. Right. All right. All right. But let's not get too far ahead here. But uh, who are some of the other characters? Okay. So the quote unquote leader was Francois Odendal. Um, and he was the one who kind of put this whole trip together and he brought on Tim Biggs and Jerome Truran, who were like him from South Africa. And Jerome really had the kayaking like pro skills. And he was a competitive kayaker. Right. On the national level. I don't think they would have survived without him. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, they kind of teamed up with a couple of Polish <clears throat> guys, Piotr Chemielinski and Zbigniew Zdak. Oh, wow. Nailed it. Maybe. <laughs> and, I'm going to botch all these names. And uh, Piotr had a lot of experience with the Apurimac, the upper Amazon. Um, and he was he was a good rafter and kayaker already can we call him chemelinski the entire time sure yeah a little criticism of joe kane he would use first names instead of last names and i was just like these names are too confusing with all these z's involved just use one or the other i kept having to flip to the pictures oh yeah pro tip there's pictures in the middle (laughs) (laughs) i had to show kyle that (laughs) I think I would have found the pictures on my own. <laughs> Thanks for the Easter egg, Christine. And then uh, Kate Durant was also part of the expedition. She was a doctor from the UK. And so she was there um, helping them out with all sorts of ailments and uh, to protect them against malaria and other diseases on the river. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the author, Joe Kane, who was a writer. and But an outdoorsy writer. Sure, I guess, an outdoorsy writer. Well, I think he wrote for, he had written things for Outdoor Magazine or Outdoor, uh, whatever the Outdoor Magazine is that has Outdoor in the name. Yeah, and he did, so he got on this expedition because he was able to secure some funding from a publisher, I believe. Okay. And he said, I felt that the life I lived was a step removed, filtered, rehearsed, relayed. So he really just wanted to do something wild. Shake the sleeping self, if you will. Yeah, if you will. 
He and did. he did. <laughs> and he did. So he left his his home in Los Angeles. <laughs> no, I don't. I forget where Colorado. That doesn't I matter. Colorado. The okay. United States. <laughs> the United States. And uh, flew down to Peru and met up with these people. He didn't know any of them really before, except for Francois, who he had met before. But um, he started, so he really started this as a bit of an outsider and he felt like an outsider, but he was one of the, one of the few that made it the whole way as it turns out. Yeah. It sounded like he was maybe projecting those feelings a little bit because yeah, it seemed like everybody was kind of getting to know each other and they made him feel welcome pretty quickly. Right. Yeah, that's true. There was, there was uh, one part where he was talking about feeling like he didn't have any, uh, like a buddy. Everyone else had a buddy mm-hmm. and he was feeling kind of left out and he was alone in his tent. And then all of a sudden someone came in his tent and another person came in his tent and then it was a party in his tent. And uh, I thought that was really sweet. Right. Now let's talk about how they all grew to hate each other. <laughs> and then everything fell apart from there. You know, I, I guess a big part of this book was there was a light mutiny. Oh, I wrote, yeah, I wrote mutiny. Full, maybe full on mutiny, it was but it wasn't mutiny. like tying up the captain and, <laughs> right. and taking over the ship. It was like uh, the captain, Odendal, brought up like, hey, it seems like uh, you guys don't want me in charge. Let's put it to a vote. And they were like, yeah, we don't want you. And then the next day he's like... Ah, we're canceling that vote. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, nah. That vote doesn't count. (laughs) But he... Yeah, the vote was I can see how it would be frustrating because I think, well, he was portaging. Portaging? Is that how you pronounce it? He was walking his boat. Yeah, I had to look up that term. I was pronouncing it portage. Portaging? Oh, wow. You're really throwing a little French (laughs) twist on it. But... He I don't was know. portaging <laughs> every single rapid. You're probably right. It's probably portaging. Okay, we're going to have to call in some expert resources here in the form of my brother. Okay. He is has been a whitewater rafting guide, and he is also a really good kayaker. Yeah, I've done that many, many, many times. Remember, you know, certain hazards like a big tree will fall over a rapid and you guys stop and portage and go around. And uh, I've done that with rafts, kayaks, lots of gear. It's a good workout. And how do you pronounce it? Portage. But a lot of times I say, oh, hmm, it is a portage. (laughs) Now a terrible kayaker was Odendal. Oh, he was terrible. Who was supposed to be leading the trip, but every time he came up to a rapid, he pulled his boat out of the I'll water. I'll walk around it, thank and, you. Yeah, and he dragged it around. Oh and, my gosh. You know, I get why they're watching this and thinking, this is our leader. We're supposed to be following him. He clearly doesn't know what he's doing. Doesn't know what he's doing. He probably was like, yeah, you get a boat, you go down the river. I think, as it turns out, he had been on another trip 
another expedition of a river and um the per- one of the people he was with died right so he was scared of rapids i don't maybe actually maybe well it sounded like it yeah it sounded like he was in over his head but wildly confident okay wild wildly confident but also very insecure because from the very beginning he he thought that Pyotr Chemelinsky was going to challenge him for to be the leader that he was going that Chemelinsky was going to take over the expedition and become the leader which he did which he kind of did yeah okay so i guess his <laughs> he did do that. his fears did come true so he was both he was he was wildly confident in his skills, which he didn't really have, but very uh, insecure about his power over. Very others. insecure about his power and, and pretty out of touch with, I think, understanding people. Right. And understanding oh, yeah. maybe his limitations as a leader. Yeah. So it was about uh, how far into the book when, or how far into the river when there was the mutiny? It was still in Peru, but it was past the hardest part of the river, I believe. Yeah, that's true. So maybe to start, so they they had to... To start. (laughs) Sorry, we're going all the way back. Yeah. Maybe we don't have to talk about it, but they, they had to hike up to the source... Which is around 17,000 feet. Which is just like really a mountaintop and yeah. see where, I guess, the snow and then go from there. So they were dealing with altitude sickness. Wait, you're saying they had to see the snow because that's the source? I think so. Yeah, they, I mean, he kind of alluded that at one time the source was thought to be a pond up there. But then someone else found it a little further up at a little stream. And then he said, you know, this is a big area. It's all kind of the source. Right, right. Let's just put in somewhere. But they wanted to be very exact about it so that they could really claim, you know, some weird sort of ownership over being the first, I think. I think they did. So and then from there... Uh, the river, which is called the Apurimac, or the, which means, um, does it mean the Great Speaker? He said the Great Speaker a number of times. Yeah, I think that's what it means. Um, it falls uh, 13,000 vertical feet, so much steeper than the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon by about five times. Right. And the gorge is 10,000 feet deep compared to the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, that's 5,000 feet deep. And it's considerably more narrow, I believe. Yeah. So it's really just like this crack in the earth. Yeah, that sounded bonkers. Yeah. The descriptions of this were really otherworldly. It also sounded like it's probably freezing because you're up high and it never gets light oh yeah it sounded very cold but the the another interesting part about this book is that it covered so much ground so much river Mm -hmm. over four thousand miles that 
the landscape totally changed between, you know, the the upper um at the Apurimac and the high country to the Whitewater and then to the the Ukiyali, which goes to the sea. It did seem to take forever. Oh, it took a long time. Because just when they started at the source and then they kind of split up where there was the walking or hiking crew and then the kayak crew. I mean, he must have wrote three or four chapters. And then at one point he's like, and this was at 15,000 feet, this village. And I'm like, you're only down a few thousand feet at this point? Oh, my goodness. Because when you think of like whitewater you think oh they're cruising right right but some days it said they only went a mile or a half mile yeah or a half mile because if you think about it they and this is the scariest part to me i mean there are all these risks and dangers and threats but the scariest part to me is the unknown Mm -hmm. you don't know what's coming if that if those ripples in the water ahead mean that there's going to be a waterfall right or just a little i don't know little jog a little meandering stream right you know it's well, i wouldn't know and apparently there are ways to really read a river if you know water and if you mm. know those signs you know a 16 foot boat with 14 people in it is heavy so you have to know how to read water a client that comes rafting who has never really been on a river that's moving fast in a rapid or something, especially, they just, all they really see are waves and things crashing. But when you get used to being on the river, you can see how water is moving and how it will react and push your boat and what things will pull you in, what will hold you. There are certain things called holes that if a raft doesn't have enough momentum, for instance, it will get stopped in this giant wave and then not make it through the wave and go like this and serve and flip. Certain holes can actually drown you. You'll be kind of cartwheeling over and over, but that's that's pretty rare, but it can happen for sure. You know, I don't know how many super beefy dudes I've gone kayaking with who think they're the boss. Cause, uh, and it's like, no, because they don't know how to read water very well. That's the thing I love the most about whitewater. Everything is reading water and being one with the river. <laughs> Well, I think that was part of the time-consuming aspect of it is a lot of times they had to go ahead, scout, scout the river, then go back and kayak, which, you know, that that's something I just don't think about because anytime I've taken a river trip through, like, a company, they drop you off. Right. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. I mean, I've yeah. only been on a rafting trip once, but all the other kayaking trips I've taken, it's just like flat water it's yeah it's nothing so yeah I mean I mean talking to my brother he's taken the same same river same route you know with people over and over and over and you really get to know the river I think Mm -hmm. but even then different things happen and conditions can change weather conditions can change and the the height of the river can change depending on if there's been recent rain or what the snowpack is. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's just so mu- so many things can change. 
this is kind of a, on the serious note, we won't talk about this too much, but one of my friends went down uh, a river in Ecuador and it was a, it was called a first descent. They believe it was the first time anybody's ever tried to kayak this section of the river. And these are all amazing kayakers. And uh, there were five of them and two of them died because of a flash flood upstream. It wasn't raining on them. It's a crazy story, but that's the thing about rivers is they can change so rapidly. But that's obviously a very rare, rare thing. But uh, anyways, the beautiful thing about rivers, though, is it does change quite a bit. Like in Washington on the commercial rivers, I take, you know, families down. They still change because in the flood season, boulders come down from the mountains and get pushed around. Rapids do change quite a bit. It's pretty cool to see that. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you're talking about change. And I thought that was an interesting aspect of the lower river is they'd ask like the army people for a map or the local government people for a map of the river. And they're, they're kind of like, no, it changes every day. We map it out every month. This is right. the most current one. It's drawn in pencil. And then it all, he also talked about like whole villages just being wiped out and they just move and rebuild somewhere the next year, which is hmm. such a crazy way to live a life. Yeah. And some of them, some, some little towns may be there one year and then not the next. Right. When they're so small. Yeah. Right. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the middle of the river, like okay. you were saying. Let's go so, back upstream. So, yeah, a little back upstream. As soon as they made it out of the Akabamba Abyss, I believe is what it's called, which is the m- most dangerous part, mm-hmm. it felt like they were going to be kind of in the clear. And then it was such a cliffhanger moment the end of one chapter into the next then uh joe kane talks about suddenly hearing gunshots oh yeah different danger a different danger being directed at them yeah they had been in such rural country that they saw very few people and then it was like uh now we're seeing the wrong people right i mean this was it was still very rural but because it was so rural, it was used for growing and transporting drugs. Cocaine. Cocaine, yeah. Well, the cocaine paste. Yeah. I believe they the make the cocaine paste. You know, I didn't dive too much into the process <laughs> of cocaine making, but I believe they make the cocaine paste and then they take it to Colombia and process it into right. cocaine powder. Yeah, I didn't realize how involved Peru was in um, in all this. I didn't either. But we did talk oh, to we go. our Peruvian friend recently. One of our Peruvian friends. That's true. One of our Peruvian <laughs> friends recently. And he had visited his family for the first time ever, ever. maybe. And he, he was like... Yeah, they were definitely involved in cocaine drug running in the 80s. Well, maybe we should blow up his spot. Anyway, so yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, a lot of people were involved in in some capacity. For sure. At any rate, they were 
getting shot at on a semi-regular basis. I, yeah, it wasn't the it wasn't the last time that they would be shot at or like held hostage. They were also pulled over by some I don't know bandits. That's what it's called when bandits capture you. It's called, yeah, it's when you're pulled pulled over by <laughs> bandits. What, what would you call it? I thought they were also involved in the local drug trade. Perhaps. Um, I would say abducted. Abducted. Okay. Held against their will. Held at gunpoint. Well, I think they asked to see their license and registration. They <laughs> said the they equivalent. asked for some papers. Yes. Anyway, yeah, that was a tense situation, and I felt like that was a big point in the book where leadership had clearly shifted from Chemelinsky, who had familiarity with rafting in Peru and kind of dealing, the kind of maneuvering his way, not just on the river, but with people in Peru as well. Like, he had a pretty good knowledge of that. Right. And that's right. when he negotiated like cans of tuna to get out of to get out yeah. of it. This is this is what was called the red zone, which was under martial law. Oh, I did read about this group actually. This I believe it was a communist the group. The Senderistas. Yeah. And they were revolting against the government at the time. Oh man, I just I just love okay. I mean the this author does this thing where he names people like just based on what they're holding. So when he's recounting the story, he calls one man machine gun and the other man rifleman. <laughs> That's exactly how I would write it. That's a book. exactly how you would do it. <laughs> Look, you don't have when you're held at gunpoint, you name them after the guns that they're holding. It's like you are what you eat in that situation. He's, yeah, he never got their names, didn't want to know their names. He just called them Rifleman and Machine Gun. <laughs> <laughs> machine Gun, capital M, capital G. Yeah, makes sense to me. Yeah. Oh, man, that was funny. But, um, he, and you know, they continued to have a good sense of humor about some of this stuff. And he he definitely has it in the retelling of it. But um, uh, Kate Durant whispered to him during this whole experience. She said, I feel like I'm reading a novel about myself. Yeah, I mean, that's a very cinematic scene there when they're captured. But also very... Comedic, very comedic. I loved when when the when he gave them the cans of tuna. He yeah. was like, "Give me six and he's like, "We discussed five, and you will get five <laughs> cans of tuna." <laughs> and I loved like he's yeah. like he had that attitude of like, "Hey, this is what's fair." <laughs> yeah, it says Jemelinski stood firm. I thought I would faint. I could not see the wisdom of getting shot over a can of tuna. <laughs> it's so true. But Rifleman accepted the five cans and they moved on. Right, right. I mean, he could. I guess he could have shot them and got all the cans. Wow, you sound like a bad version of Rifleman. No, I'm machine gun. <laughs> You're machine gun. Anyway, the red zone sounded scary. 
And so there was a lot and it didn't pretty much throughout the rest of the book. It was always, you know, wondering who's a good guy, who's a bad guy. Oh, you mean whether it's the army or it's the government officials or... Or if it's, yeah, drug cartels. Right. I I thought it was interesting how in tune they were with river life. Oh, yeah. Like they needed a place to stay. And this was more on the lower part. And they'd see a a canoe tied up on the riverbank. And they're like, well, someone lives there. Let's go impose on them. And I also was very curious. I was having trouble trying to picture what the living situation was at a lot of these houses because they would say, we set up their tent, our tents in their house. Mm-hmm. Multiple occasions, they said, we set up the tents in the house. And I was wondering, is it like like these Mexican houses where there's a big courtyard or are they actually physically in the structure Or like on a deck. Or on a deck. I don't know. It was very confusing because initially I was picturing like small huts and they're setting up this (laughs) giant tent. Yeah, I don't know. In their living room. I don't know. But it did sound like mosquitoes were an issue and malaria was an issue. Oh, yeah. You got to be in the tent. They didn't have any run-ins with piranhas either. Apparently that is an overblown myth. Yeah. And I did not realize that there were pink dolphins in the Amazon River. Oh, yeah. That sounded pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, wild (laughs) dolphins. Yeah. Yeah. They were just kayaking along and then kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Kentucky when the whale came up to the raft. But, you know, they hear a little something and there's a freaking pink dolphin right next to you. Well, so that was on the lower half. Mm -hmm. So should we talk about the last portion of the trip? Yeah, I mean, okay. Outside of the dangerous portion of the trip? So once, okay, so the beginning was mostly kayaking and hiking. So the author and some of the others were actually hiking alongside the river for the first bit of it, right? Yeah, they were taking beer breaks left and right. <laughs> Everybody was offering them beer. And then they're... Oh, yeah, that was funny. And and then they were... Most of them were in the raft. Mm-hmm. They basically split into two teams on the river, a raft team and... And kayakers. Two or three, three kayaks. Mm-hmm. And Odendal, the coward, was in one of the kayaks. And... and uh, the author, Joe, got his taste of being on the river. And then after that, it was like, can't take me off this river. Mm-hmm. And then it got to the point where Odendal quit. And can can I just say that guy is such a coward. <laughs> he went back from there. He quit. He gave them the, the funding, at least, or part of the funding, uh-huh. some funding to finish okay. the trip, but then went to England to the Royal Society of Explorers or whatever, mm-hmm. some royal society, and was like, I did it, the first one to go from the source to the sea, and they weren't even done the trip yet. Yeah. This guy was, I mean, you can, what a terrible human being. So I searched for him. He wrote a book about this trip. Oh, wow. Different side of the story. It has like 
three reviews and two of them are like read joe kane's book this guy didn't even finish the third one was from francois odendahl five stars (laughs) he would (laughs) oh he's terrible anyway so francois quit and uh some other people had to leave because you know it was taking too long and and they had other things going on and or they didn't have passports or whatever it was mm-hmm. and they decided at some point joe was gonna have to kayak he didn't know how to kayak so they basically taught him how to kayak and build up his stamina and tolerance like in spurts so his shoulders his wrists yeah so he would be on the the raft and he started with one hour on the kayak a day then two then three then four and and kind of worked up from there and I thought that was really um kind of an interesting approach and I did not realize how painful it is on your wrists you know I haven't done a ton a ton of kayaking but I have done one weekend trip like overnight trip that I think was maybe 30 miles and when we started the next day my shoulders were so sore Mm. that I think we not just mine everyone's and we were all inexperienced I think we called the company to pick us up a little early and so when he's doing like 3,000 miles or 2,500 miles or whenever he started kayaking on this trip I was really impressed by that oh yeah I mean, it's it's incredible. So it ended up being just two guys who finished the I'll say it was four people that finished the expedition. Mm -hmm. But because of the resources and how they kind of divided everything up, it was just two on the river. Yeah. Two two men on the river that finished the whole trip. I'm curious. Do you think if Joe Kane had not done it, do you think? Chemelinsky would have finished on his own? Oh, that was that's a good question. They seem to really develop quite a bond. Oh, with it each became other. a buddy film by the second oh, half of it. Yeah. It was like a buddy road trip. They had they had a, a couple like tiffs too, where at one point um Joe Kane said something about well, that's a Polish thing to say. Yeah, he insulted so, Poland. And, and he was like he just, you know, gave him the silent treatment all day on the river when usually he was very talkative. And he was singing all the time. I think yeah. they like shared, you know, their whole life stories on that river. But he, um, Chemelinski gave Joe the silent treatment over that. And then finally was like, why did you say that? Yeah, he was he was legitimately hurt. Yeah. I think he would have finished the trip. Because there was a point where he had to get out of Peru and into Brazil because his right. passport was expiring or his visa was expiring. And he basically paddled for 40 hours straight. Right. Maybe falling asleep here and there on his kayak out of exhaustion. But that seemed like this is the type of guy that's just going to will himself to right. do whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah, there were uh, there was that time and there was one other time where they became separated in the dark mm-hmm. and couldn't find each other, I think. 
but somehow, I mean, it's really incredible that it all worked out. That no one died. That no one died. Thank goodness. Especially in the first half. Yeah. Honestly, because they did talk about basically every expedition where people had gone down this river, someone died. Yeah. And even during their trip, there was a Swiss team that was had started ahead of them and they were worried they would finish the trip before them from source to sea. So it became a bit of a race. Right. And they dropped out. Dropped out of the race they didn't even know they were in. (laughs) Can I just read you this one part about learning how to raft and kayak on the river? There is an inherent humbling cruelty to learning how to run whitewater. In most other so-called adrenaline sports, skiing, surfing, and rock climbing come to mind, one attains mastery or the illusion of it only after long apprenticeship, after enduring falls and tumbles, the fatigue of training previously unused muscles, the discipline of developing a new and initially awkward set of skills. Running whitewater is fundamentally different. With a little luck, one is immediately able to travel long distances often as great at great speeds with only a rudimentary command of the sport's essential skills and about as much physical stamina as it takes to ride a bicycle downhill. At the beginning, at least, whitewater adrenaline comes cheap. It's the river doing the work, of course, but like a teenager with a hot car, one forgets what the true power source is. Arrogance reigns. The river seems all smoke and mirrors, lots of bark. You hear it chortling away beneath you, crunching boulders, but not much bite. You think, let's get on with it. Let's run this damn river. And then maybe the raft hits a drop in the river, say a short hidden waterfall, or maybe a wave reaches up and flicks the boat on its side as easily as a horse swatting flies with its tail. Maybe you're thrown suddenly into the center of the raft and the floor bounces back and bunts you overboard. Maybe you just fall right off the side of the raft so fast you don't realize what's happening. It doesn't matter. The results are the same. The world goes dark. The river, the word hardly does justice to the churning mess enveloping you. The river tumbles you like so much laundry. It punches the air from your lungs. You're helpless. Swimming is a joke. You know for a fact that you are drowning. For the first time, you understand the strength of the insouciant monster that has swallowed you. Maybe you travel a hundred feet before you surface. The current is moving that fast. And another hundred feet just short of a truly fearsome plunge, one that will surely kill you. And before you see the rescue lines, you're hauled to shore wearing a sheepish grin and a look in your eye that is equal parts confusion, respect, and raw fear. That is river lesson number one. Everyone suffers it. And every time you get the least bit cocky, every time you think you have finally figured out what the river is all about, you suffer it all over again. Woof. It sounds miserable. It sounds exciting. As someone who can't swim, who starts hyperventilating in still water, yeah. it, that part of it made me think, okay, well, I could do this because no one's swimming in this. It's equally problematic for everyone. No one can breathe. I'm already hyperventilating. They're hyperventilating. Equal, equal. But it made me definitely not want to do it. <laughs> I So, I mean, this is a question that we ask ourselves a lot is, you know, would you do this trip? Would you try this adventure? 
So would you do it? Uh, there's not a chance I would do it. <laughs> but most of these long trips, I mean, who's got the time? First yeah. and foremost, apparently most people don't have the funding either. Right. And I certainly don't have the passion for kayaking. Right. Now, I would not expect you to want to do this trip. However, I would kayak certain portions of a river in the United States because, mm-hmm. and maybe other countries too, but it sounded like the bugs on this were terrible. The drug runners, I don't speak Spanish, but, you know, I'd bring tuna. Yeah, yeah, you would. I'd be ready to <laughs> bribe them with I, tuna. I could just picture you after reading this book everywhere you go, you just have cans of tuna in your pocket now. <laughs> Do you guys accept a tuna? <laughs> Actually, that's the word for tuna in Spanish, Kyle. Is it? Atun. I would have thought it was pesca. pesca Atun. Pe- Atun. There you go. Diez atun? And now it's not like a, a magic word that's going to get you out of all sticky situations. Oh, but any sticky situation, <laughs> any situation I'm in in Peru, I'm bribing people with cans of tuna. <laughs> I'm slipping it to them like 20s. Okay. <laughs> well, I I have to say I I agree. I, I would not attempt this. No way in hell. And you speak Spanish. That that yeah, that is neither here nor there. I I would hike to the source. I think that really? would be really cool. I would love to see the canyon at the beginning. Oh, I'd love to dangle my feet over the I'd gorge. I'd love to see that. But no, the rest of it is just a hard pass for me. And it doesn't even look that it doesn't even look that pretty parts of the river the water specifically yeah. looks super silty yeah. and muddy well because this it that thing is flowing you know right. and oh honey that thing <laughs> is flowing <laughs> you know it's just it's just too much silt for me <laughs> well my southern twang comes out when i'm talking about rivers i guess i don't know um but but my brother, oh gosh, this episode makes me sound like I'm obsessed with my brother. And I am. No. But my youngest brother, he and some of his friends did a rafting trip down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. And that sounded really incredible. The canyon was amazing because we went in uh, January or February and the the days are pretty short then, but there are so few people out there. We only saw two other groups the entire month. Camp next to the river and uh, in amazingly gorgeous places. The people on the trip that weren't very familiar with the river at all were three or four of them were really, really good rock climbers. And, and the canyon has amazing climbing all over the place. And at one point they took us down a slot canyon, like a small canyon that comes in. Uh, and we hiked up, you know, kind of halfway up the canyon, uh, slot canyon. And then uh, they set up a bunch of ropes and we, we repelled and climbed down and did three repels and climbed a bit. And yeah, that was the amazing thing about going with good climbers. It's like they didn't know much about the river, but they knew a lot about the rocks. That was really cool.
Okay. Well, so neither of us would do this trip. No. If you want to watch a movie that's similar to this, you could watch the movie <laughs> River Wild with Meryl oh. Streep and Kevin Bacon. <laughs> I think that pretty much sums oh, us all Oh, I want to watch that again. Yeah, same. Well, and this did make me think about our own kayak and wanting to get back out on uh, the lake in our own kayak on some flat water. Okay. So you ready to get back out there? Maybe. I'm wow. not making a commitment Resound, on a recording. Resounding enthusiasm. I'm not making a commitment from my that you kayaking can partner. Throw into my face. Well, you know what? I'm almost fully vaxxed. I've got almost fully vaxxed friends. I can bring someone else in that kayak now. You sure can. <laughs> ain't no. Oh, honey, ain't nobody stopping you from <laughs> kayaking with a friend. <laughs> Get out there. Hmm, that's actually a really good idea that I just had. Anyway, wow. so I can do things with other people now. Anyway, Kyle, here's the big question. What do you rate this book? Mm, well, it wasn't my favorite book that we've read, but I think it was my second favorite book. After what? What was your uh Travels with Charlie? Oh, okay. I can't remember what I ranked Travels with with Charles. But I think I want to say I gave it a 4.85 or maybe a 4.75. So this one, I will say, I think it could have been a little shorter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Travels with Charlie was thin. I think I think it just looks bigger. No, I read the number at the end, 329 pages or something like that. It's a long book and it's a long journey. And, you know, they got done the rapids part and he was like, we got 2,500 miles to go or something like that. And right. I'm like, that's a trip and a half across the U.S. It was six months. It was a long. Six month long Six months of being on a river. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. I don't like being wet. But anyway, back to the rating. I'm going to go 4.65. I did wow. enjoy this book. I liked that there was adventure. I thought the descriptions of nature were, they weren't overly done. They were uh, succinct. Anyway, I'm going yeah. 4.65. What do you give it? I'm giving it a solid five. It was my favorite book that we've read so far. A solid five? Yes. Five? Yes. You can't get better than this. <laughs> I didn't say you're, that. You're going to change the <laughs> scale once we hit these survivor stories. I, 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 all, I still stand by my rating of the snow leopard being the a five. The fact that you brought up your rating of the snow leopard, <laughs> like you have to defend it four months later, five months later, makes me kind of think... You're backtracking a little bit. I I bring that up because at that time you said to me, this is the best book you're ever going to read. And I said then, I don't know. There could be other five-star books. Mm -hmm. And this is one of them. This is a five-star book for you. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It was so full of adventure, of you know drama and the personal dynamics and just like human behavior and relationships it was like a a, a kardashians on the <laughs> river 
It's like a reality show on the river. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that. Uh, Big Brother meets the Amazon. And it really, it really felt like you were being swept away with the story, with the river. I, I just, I, I felt in it with them and I was rooting for them to make it to the source. Yeah. And, um, and all of the adventures along the way were so, uh, you know, unexpected at times and, and interesting and heartwarming at other times. You know, there were lots of interactions with people along the river that were really um, kind of tender and sweet. And it just, all together, it was just such an incredible feat to have done that. And yeah, I think it's absolutely five stars. It was written really well. And I mean, to pack six months into however many pages that was. 321. Sorry, I was off. By and in the pages. in the forewords, uh, whoever. Oh my God! You read the foreword too. <laughs> Sheesh. Whoever wrote the foreword, they said something like, "This, you know, Joe Kane's book doesn't have embellishment because it doesn't need any. Mm. Like the story itself was so good, you don't need." hyperbole or a lot of words to make it sound bigger than it was it was just it was so exciting in and of itself it didn't need to be embellished so it had a little of everything I think the great part about this is that he developed some lifelong friendships with these people Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty neat that he still keeps in touch with the people that weren't cowards. <laughs> I love the afterwards where he's like, haven't even heard from Francois. Don't know what happened to him. Yeah. yeah that's so dismissive. I can't remember what movie it is, but it sounds like the type of thing where they just cut back to that guy at the end of the book and he's actually like, tied up in the amazon jungle somewhere or <laughs> or some you know he he suffered some pitiful fate that was, only happens to a coward of such magnitude yeah i did think the very last paragraph of the afterword was pretty nice pretty whoa i read the afterword you read the afterword yeah i couldn't be slowed whoa. down at that point you couldn't be stopped no, well, I had to know what happened to these people. You would have just hit the source and gone all the way across the Atlantic. I know. <laughs> I would have. I would have contiquied my way out of there. <laughs> but getting back to the last paragraph of the afterword. I thought the very last paragraph of the afterword was a nice summary of the book and a great way to end it when he said, so all I can say is this, for a while at least, the Amazon sucked me out of my cocoon, and my life has been the better for it. To anyone seriously considering a flying leap into the void, I say, go. Yeah, that was that was like, ooh. That, that kind of almost felt like a challenge. Yeah, a little bit. And I, I also like, I'm not sure if he said it in the afterward or somewhere else, but he said, for six months, I have chased an idea that I now understand was only an excuse to move. Hmm. So, you know, this idea of getting to the source was really just an excuse to, like, 
get out and see the world and experience something incredible. Well, that's a huge theme in movies is the idea that uh, lack of movement or stasis mm. is death Ooh. and equivalent to death. Ooh. So, you know, if you're not moving, you're dying. Get busy. You're going to quote or Shawshank? Or get busy. <laughs> you're going to Shawshank your way out of this episode? Get busy living or get busy dying? Oh, there Is that you, what you're looking for? There, yeah. Yeah. I was like, it's get busy something and then, or get busy doing something else. Living or dying. All right. All right. Any parting words? Uh, I just have to say, read this book. It's really freaking good. Hey, guys, I just want to say read this book <laughs> one last time. Tom, uh, it was just a wonderful adventure and we loved it dearly. It was so good. And I think it's kind of underrated compared to some of these other adventure books. So that's the episode. Be sure to read Desert Solitaire by who? We, I don't think we ever Edward said... Edward Abbey. Oh, we said Edward Desert or something. No, I said Edward Abbey at the very beginning, I think. But yes, it's about his journey to beat himself in a card game in the desert. What's it really about? We never even covered it. Don't, don't know. know. Alright. We'll be surprised. Probably quiet and loneliness in the desert. It's autobiographical. Alright. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Do you guys accept a tuna? <laughs> <laughs>